Well, good morning. Welcome to everybody who's joining us online today and on site here as well. If you were with us last week, you know that we've just kicked off a new fall sermon series called Leading Questions. And in this series, we're going to be looking at some of the first questions. So we talk about first questions, so the leading question, the lead-off question that certain people in the Bible have asked. And then considering, is there any significance you know, behind that question within the context which we find it within Scripture, but then also for us today. We began last week by looking at the very first question that God asked. And anyone remember what that question was? Where are you? Exactly. The leading question that God asks in the Bible in Genesis uh, chapter 3. Where are you? A question he asked of Adam and Eve when they had uh, gone off to hide because of the shame and the guilt of the sin that they had committed. We talked not only about shame and guilt last week, but also about a story of Elijah who also went off to hide because of fear. Fear of the chaos and the turmoil in the world around him. And then God comes into both of these stories, into the story of Adam and Eve and and into the story of Elijah. He comes looking for them in the midst of the shame and the guilt and the chaos and the fear. Not, Not to bring condemnation or to bring more fear to them, but he comes asking this leading question to help them consider, where are we in relationship with each other? Like, why are you hiding from me? He kind of says. And, and if that chaos had entered into anybody's life, I, I hope last week by being here, you, you felt a call as well to understand that God comes to you because he loves you and he wants to restore order into that life for you. You know, it's kind of like, I, I think all of us at some point, if we think about it long enough, are guilty of playing kind of that, that hide and seek game with God. Where, where something happens in our life, whether it's shame and guilt or fear, whatever it may be, and, and then we kind of go and hide. We, we separate. We pull back from our relationship with him or from our church participation or community of, of friends and followers. We kind of go into that hiding. We play that game of hide and seek with God. But, but praise God. Praise our Heavenly Father that we have one who comes seeking us, who comes to find us, and who comes enough to care and ask the question, where are you? Because I miss you. I want to be in that community with you again. You know, I used to play hide-and-seek with my kids when they were little. I'm sure a lot of parents and, and grandparents have played hide-and-seek with their kids as well. And, and, you know, kids aren't always very good at it. When our kids became teenagers, they got very good at it. We had a hard time finding them sometimes. <laughs> they get better at it as they get older. Uh, you know, but they get a little better as they get older. But it's much easier when they're little because they don't know how to hide very good. And, uh, like, these kids still have some learning to do <laughs> on how properly to hide. This is kind of the stage that my granddaughter Lydia is at right now. And, and we can play hide and seek or versions of, of peekaboo. She, yeah, she sees herself. Yeah. <laughs> peekaboo up there. She just puts a blanket over her head and it's like, where's Lydia? Where'd you go? The whole world just disappeared all of a sudden. But then when, when the blanket comes down or when she comes out of hiding, she loves to come out of hiding. And with that big smile on her face, she loves to come and see her grandpa. You know, when people come out of hiding, they come out of hiding and they have the opportunity to experience the joy of God's love and the, and the joy of the grace of God that's offered to them. And that was partially what we talked about last week. And, and so our answer to God's question, where are you, can, can be assessed in that way. But also we're going to take it a step further now today. And we're going to take it a step further and build upon that and by looking at the very first question that Jesus asked in the Bible. Anyone have any ideas? You might miss it. It's, it's, it's obvious, but you can gloss over it sometimes. Anybody have any idea what the first question Jesus asked in the Bible was? It's quiet. When you hear it, you're going to know it. 
The very first question, the leading question Jesus asked was this, why were you looking for me? Why were you looking for me? It's the very first question he asks in the Bible. We find this in Luke chapter 2. It's a question that Jesus asked of his parents, Mary and Joseph, following what they thought was a rather stressful game of hide-and-seek that Jesus was playing with, with them when he was 12 years old. And so we find this in Luke chapter 2. It's really the only story we have from Jesus' childhood. And if, if you're interested in reading the whole story and looking at it and you want to use a pew Bible, it's found on page 832. And the story takes place while Jesus and his family have made a trip to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem and back. And beginning in verse 41 of Luke chapter 2, we see that every year Mary and Joseph would make this trip. It, it was something common that, that faithful Jewish families would do is they would make this annual trip to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover, this week-long celebration. And it was a bit of a long trip, and it could be a dangerous trip at times, so people tended to travel in groups. They would travel together for safety and for support. And as you can imagine, if you have a group of young families traveling together, that the kids are going to kind of move from family to family to family within the caravan. And it becomes sort of a shared responsibility to, to travel together to provide safety and to look after one another's families and children. Well, this is how they travel. They get to the festival, have a wonderful time of the week there, and they're traveling home. And, and Mary and Joseph have not seen Jesus for a little while as they're traveling home, which may not be too strange because he's probably off playing with his cousins. But he, he doesn't show up for lunch. And then when he misses dinner, they start to become increasingly concerned to the point where perhaps Mary went to Joseph and said, I, I, I can't find Jesus anywhere. He's not with the kids. He's not with his aunt. He's not with his cousins. I, I think he's missing and then they realize that they actually haven't seen Jesus for a while, and they've left him back in Jerusalem. <laughs> now, I, I, I don't know if you've ever forgotten a child somewhere at some point, maybe, maybe at a playground or, or at soccer practice. I, I'm sure there's some of us have kids we've all thought about. I'm, I'll come back for you when you're 18, right? <laughs> kind, kind of thing. But, but you've probably perhaps never left a child in that fashion. Although I do remember one wedding I did a few years back, and typical wedding fashion, people were running late for it and were rushing to get from place to place. And all of a sudden, this one limo shows up with all the guys, and the guys all pile out, and, and the groomsmen are there, and we're getting organized, and it's about time to start the reception, to start the wedding ceremony. And I'm doing kind of my head count to make sure everyone's in place before we start walking down the aisle. And I realize that I can't find the ring bearer who was at the rehearsal the night before, but he's not there. And so I, I asked one of the groomsmen, the best man, do you know where, where the ring bearer is? And his face just turned white all of a sudden. Because, see, the ring bearer was with the groomsman at the house getting ready, but he was in a separate bedroom playing video games, this little five-year-old boy playing video games by himself. And they all got excited for the wedding, hopped in the limo and left. <laughs> and so they hopped back in a car and burned back to the house to pick up the ring bearer, who had no idea that he was left alone the whole time. He was playing video games. And the groom is there left with me. All the groom could say is, don't tell my wife. <laughs> don't tell my wife I forgot her nephew. <laughs> so, but, now, now, he was only alone for about five, you know, for this five-year-old was only alone for about an hour. Jesus was missing for a whole day, plus another travel day, plus part of another day to come find him. And when Mary and Joseph finally do locate him, he's at the temple. He's talking to the rabbis, having a Q&A, discussing the things of God. Now, as you can imagine, his parents rush in. They see him. They, they grab him. They hug him. And then Mary snaps at him. In, in verse 48, Mary snaps at him and says, how could you do this to us? We've, we've been so worried about you. And then listen to Jesus' reply. This is his first question, the leading question Jesus asks in all of Scripture. He says, why? Why were you looking for me? 
did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? Which is a fascinating question. Because on one hand, it reveals that Jesus has this awareness of his divine attribute, that, that, that his heavenly father, there's a connection there. He has this awareness of this divine nature that he was God. But also, there's this sense that he's living within the limitations of his human nature. Fascinating question. But Mary and Joseph don't understand this. They, they, just, they, they can't comprehend kind of what he's getting at, what he's saying in his calmness and his matter-of-fact nature that he asked this question. And so they respond in verse 50. By, it simply says that they, they didn't understand what he was saying. But they take him home, and, and he continues to live and to grow, and he was a good, obedient child under Mary and Joseph's uh, care for many, many years. And then it summarizes the chapter comes to an end in verse 52. It ends by saying, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. And in favor with God and man. He grew in wisdom. What do these terms mean? He grew in wisdom. Wisdom is different than knowledge. You see, there's a lot of smart people in this world, but there's a lot of smart people who do dumb things. Jesus wasn't one of them. He would have attended as he grew up. He would have attended school, and he would have gone to synagogue, and he would have received all sorts of knowledge But then he knew how to properly put that into practice in his life and his relationships as well. He grew in stature. Another word for stature could be maturity. But not just growing in physical maturity. He he also would have had to grow in emotional and relational maturity. Just just like all of us as we go through these developmental years of our lives. The only difference is at each stage he attained perfection of stature in these things. Morally and spiritually. Spiritually. And as he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature, he also grew in favor with people. And we can assume from that quite easily that he had a good reputation. Now we know from his ministries that people loved him. But, but even before, we're not even to the parts of his ministry yet. We're still talking about, about Jesus before he was known as the Messiah. And he grew in favor with people. He, remember, before he was Messiah, he would, have been, he would have been a carpenter. He would have been a businessman. And we can assume that he was well-respected in the community. You're the kind, of, the kind of guy who takes competitors' coupons, right? <laughs> you like to shop at his store. The, the guy who's got a better return policy than Costco kind of thing. Uh, but more seriously, he, he would have had a good reputation. He would have been known as, as a trustworthy guy, somebody who was caring and had a good reputation in the community. But he also grew in favor with God. He knew his heavenly father, and his heavenly father knew him. This could be understood similar to when we talk about spiritual formation. Like Jesus would have had these regular patterns of prayer and and seeking the Father's will and and knowing the Scripture and applying it and serving and loving other people. He would have been able to put into practice these and learn these disciplines that sometimes we're familiar with but we struggle to, to live out in our lives. This verse 52 is an important one for us today as we consider this, this subject, because in summary, in summary, as Jesus grew throughout his life, he was intentionally cultivating healthy relationships with God and with people, is what it's talking about here. He was intentionally cultivating these healthy relationships with God and with other people. Now that we've kind of covered that story, let, let me ask you the question. If Jesus were to ask you this leading question today, why are you looking for me? How would you answer that question? Now, it's true that we're in a different context than Mary and Joseph. We're we're not his parents looking for a lost child who, who enter into the temple and find our son. 
But I want to suggest to you that it's still a valid question for us today. Because we are all people who walked into the church looking for Jesus today. Now, you may not have thought about it in that fashion, but it's true. I, I think it's true that, that there is nobody who is watching online right now, and there's nobody who is on site right now who is here by accident. Nobody walked into this church today expecting to buy a jug of milk. No one came in here thinking, when's the hockey game going to start? Where do I get my oil changed? It's not why you came. No one is watching online thinking, when do the sports highlights begin? Or how do I do the online shopping here? Or looking for TikTok dances, huh? could do one, but I won't, because my daughter will disown me. Right? That's not why we came. I'm willing to bet that there's nobody who's here, online or on site, who's surprised we're talking about Jesus. You expected that. And see, Jesus' question presumes that Mary and Joseph should have known where to find him because he had to be about his father's business. And everyone who is on site or online right now had some degree of awareness that by being part of this assembly today, being part of this service today, it's going to have something to do with Jesus. Now, for all of us, our answer to this question will fall into one of four categories, I want to suggest to you. And the four, one of those four categories is going to fall into, will be based upon who you know him to be currently and the questions that you actually have that you're hoping he can answer for you. Let me explain what I mean by these categories. There are some people who might be here with us online or on site who will be in this curious category. They're kind of curious about Jesus. Maybe, maybe the people in the curious category were even dragged here. They're like, I didn't come here by my own volition. I was dragged here. Well, that may be the case, but you probably have the same question as somebody who came in during the curious stage on their own willful decision. And the question is, Jesus, and the answer to his question will be, Jesus, what difference will you make in my life? As he asks you, why did you come looking for me? You think, well, I'm, I'm curious, Jesus. What difference could you possibly make in my life? I'm curious to know. And if you find yourself on that stage, we are glad. We're, we're, we're thrilled that you're here. And I want to suggest to you that this is one of the most important answers to one of the most important questions that you can ever ask in your entire life. Because if who the Bible says Jesus is is true, or if it's false, is a critical question. Because here's the thing, if you're curious but you don't know, when you find out that the claims the Bible makes about Jesus are false, really, it changes nothing. And you may have lost a few hours of your life, but hopefully you made some good friends along the way. But if what the Bible says is true, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything about us and the world, how we relate to it. There's other people who might be here who will be at more of a stage we refer to as being captivated. You heard the good news about Jesus Christ at some point. Someone shared that with you. And you believe that it was true. And you're like, man, I'm in. I believe. I've received it. I accept it. But my question to you now, Jesus, is how? How do I live out this new life? As he asks you, why are you looking for me? I, I'm looking for you, Jesus, because I want to know how do I live out this life? I, I've heard, I believe, but now what? What do I do next? How do I live out this life? And if you find yourself in this captivated stage, this is exciting days. These are exciting days where there's so much energy and excitement and so much opportunity for things to be learned and to be experienced about this new life that you have with Jesus and how that can be lived out amongst others. And after people have been in this captivated stage for a while, they tend to find themselves into a third level, which is referred to as like a committed stage. 
And when Jesus asks you his question, your answer is committed stage. Whether you've been committed for a few months, a few years, maybe it feels like a lifetime that you've been part of this relationship with Christ. Your question, your answer to his question is, how do I keep experiencing new life? And this is a critical question. Because the committed season is a challenging season. Some of the risks that happen for those who are committed to Christ, it's not that they're at risk of losing their faith necessarily, but the risk is more that their faith can run dry. That it can feel like they get stuck in a rut. That things just become kind of normal and ordinary. Yeah, I go to work and I come to church. And I go to work and I go to church. I go to work and go to church. I read my Bible on occasion. I know I should, but I don't. I pray sometimes. You get into this rut, but it, just, it goes dry. It feels like there's this emptiness that's left. And so the question that gets posed to you is, is why are you looking for me? And the answer would be, how, how do I keep experiencing new life? How do I keep it vibrant? How do I stay out of the old patterns, the old habits from coming back? How can I dig a deeper well? of faith that I can draw life-giving water from? How do I deepen that well during the committed stage? And that's an exciting time too, but a challenging one for some. And then we find ourselves at the fourth level. Some people find themselves at the fourth stage where, where you reach a point in your life with Christ where, where you start to have this overflow where you want to share it with others and you begin to cultivate you begin to cultivate. When Jesus says, why are you looking for me? Your, your, your answer to him might be, I, I, I want to know how do I be a disciple who makes disciples? How do I cultivate more followers of Christ? And sometimes this happens for parents. When they have kids and it's like, okay, I've got this faith and I need to take it a little more seriously now. And I want, I want my kids to experience it. I want my kids to have what I had in more. I want to cultivate that in them. Maybe it could be family and friends where you come to faith or you discover new life in Christ and you know the difference Jesus can make in their life and you want to share that faith with them. And so you have this desire, Jesus, how do I cultivate that in somebody else's life? And you have this emerging heart for missions that starts to show up because you want to be a follower of Christ who makes followers of Christ. Now what do all these have in common? What all these have in common is, is that just like Jesus, who, who demonstrated this in his life, they require us to intentionally cultivate healthy relationships with God and with people. They, retire, they require us to intentionally work towards that. And because Jesus achieved this in perfection in his life, we can come to him, and he rightfully can ask us the question, how can I help you with these things? We can find answers, we can find information, we can find direction to these very things in Jesus Christ as we cultivate relationships with other people and with God. But let's talk about that word cultivation for a minute. What does it mean to cultivate something? And how is it that Jesus can be the one who helps us to cultivate these relationships? Well, this word cultivate is, is an agricultural term. It, it, it technically has to do with the idea of, of breaking up soil and preparing it so that you can plow it and plant seeds in it. But then you continue to cultivate by not just plowing and planting seeds in it, but that you care for the seeds that you've planted and you, you tend to what's been planted over a period of time. That's kind of what it means to, to cultivate. And we, we see this in, in different places outside of agriculture in our lives. It's, it's used in different ways if you want to learn a new skill or, or a new ability. For example, a student can cultivate good study habits that leads to the fruitfulness, the, you know, the, the, the prosperity of good grades. Uh, a family can cultivate a good marriage which can lead to a good home and, and, and healthy kids and, and family. 
You can cultivate a deep spiritual well in your relationship with God. And if you can cultivate that, if you can, if you can invest in it and plant those seeds and care for them and tend to it and allow it to grow, you can cultivate this deep spiritual well with God that leads to, to a, you know, a bountiful amount of, of living water from which you can drink from, from God's faithfulness and from his grace and truth and love during the hard times you have that to, to, to draw from. And so when we think about cultivating in many different scenarios, there's one thing that they all have in common is, is they don't just naturally happen by accident on their own. You know, a farmer who wants to cultivate a high-producing field but has no activity, it's not going to happen through inactivity. It's not going to happen by random chance. No successful farmer has ever sat back and just said, hey, let's let nature do its thing. We'll just wait and see what comes up. You won't be a farmer very long. Other things are going to grow up that you don't want. That's going to choke out the vitality of what could be a productive field. You'll go broke. You'll go dry. If you just let nature do its course, you have to invent, intentionally cultivate what you want to produce. And the same can be said when it comes to our relationships with other people within community. And the same can be said when it comes to our relationship with God. We can't just let those things spring up by chance. Because little bits of it will, but a lot of other stuffs, weeds that will choke out the, the, the harvest and the fruitfulness will grow up with it. See, whatever you wish to cultivate in your life, you can't just leave it to chance. It requires choice and effort. And there's one passage I want to quickly look at today, and it's, and it's found in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, where, where Paul is, is giving direction to the church in Colossae and, uh, on how to cultivate. He's kind of giving them direction in a way on, on how to cultivate these relationships with God and with people in the long run in their lives. And, and it says this in verse 6 and 7. It says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. We can break this verse down to actually these four categories. You see, the first thing that Paul speaks about here is he speaks about having received Jesus Christ, which is where it all begins. There was one time in the life of all of these believers in the church of Colossae who, who were at the curious stage. They had heard about this guy, Jesus. They had heard what he had done, and they were curious about him. And they go, well, who is he? Why did he come into the world, and why does that matter to me? Were some of the questions they would have been asking, and people at the curious stage asked those questions. But then somebody came and told them the good news about Jesus. Told them about the reality that all of us, from the very beginning, have sinned. And our sin is basically these, these acts and these thoughts that violate God's perfect will and God's perfect character. And because we've sinned, it leads to the separation between us and God. And the separation happens because we have sin in our lives. There's, there's sort of these, these tarnished nature that we have from our sin. But then there's God who is perfectly pure and holy. And in order for him to remain pure and holy, he can't associate with those who have sinned in their lives. And this is a problem for us and for God. And it's a problem that we can't overcome because there's nothing we can do to earn our way back to holiness. There's nothing we can do to be good enough to ever deal with the sin in our lives. Because the opposite of bad is not good. The opposite of, of, of bad is, is, is not bad. And not bad is still tarnished. And not bad associating with God would still tarnish God's holiness and his purity and his perfection. So the problem existed and was beyond our ability to control. But our loving Heavenly Father came seeking. 
He came for us. And as it says in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and Jesus Christ came. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And Jesus taught us how to live and how to love. And ultimately, he paid the price, the penalty for our sins. And he dealt with the problem that separates us. And to receive Jesus, as, as, as it says here, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, it says here, is to accept and believe that Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross was the only means by which that could be dealt with. And that he dealt with it sufficiently. And that we can be given the gift of forgiveness because of his work and be free from that sin. And when we receive Christ in that fashion for that purpose, at that very moment, it says we have a new identity. We have a new destiny. We have a new hope and a new freedom. And we are brought into the family of God and we can experience new life with him from that day forward. And I'm just going to pause for a second because there might be somebody online or on site here who has not made that profession of faith. And I just want you to know right now that, 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 that you don't have to come to some special meeting or some special place or time to do that. You can, you can accept Christ right now where you are. You simply need to offer him a heartfelt prayer that simply says thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for my sin that I could not. I need you. Thank you for giving your life for me. As you gave your life for me, I give you mine. And as we make a heartfelt prayer, profession of faith, it says that we have this new life that comes in. And we suddenly find ourselves moving from curious to captivated because our hearts have become captivated by the joy and the love of Christ Jesus. And we can feel the excitement build within us. And as Paul continues in Colossians here, he says during this, this next step is that we go forward to continue living in him then. Is that once we've received him, we go forward to continue living in him. Because the soil of your heart has been tilled. The seed has been planted. And when you pray that prayer of receiving Christ, you allow it to seedling to grow. And as it grows, it needs to be nurtured. It needs to be cared for. It needs to be continued to be cultivated. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we read that this is one of the gifts that God gives to us, is that we receive salvation, we receive forgiveness from our sins by his grace alone. It's one of the gifts he gives us. But if we keep reading in Ephesians 2, it says that that's not the only gift we get because God created us, he made us, and he created us for good works. He created us for a purpose that he prepared in advance for us to do. And so as we continue to cultivate our lives and live our lives in him, it's not just about living out the joy and the excitement of this new life we have because we've been forgiven. It's also to take steps to allow those roots to start to go deep and to discover what is the purpose and the good things that he's designed us to do. How do we live for him? How do we live in him and do those good things he prepared in advance for us to do? To discover the fullness of the gifts that are available to us in Jesus Christ. And as we do that over time, we find ourselves into this committed time where we don't stop cultivating. We don't stop cultivating our relationship with God and with others. Because what happens? If you have a plant at home and it's doing pretty good, you got it from a seedling, you grew it up and you had to transplant it a few times, the pot got bigger, got stronger, but then you go on vacation and the kids don't water the plant, what happens? It, it kind of droops. It withers. Some leaves start to fall off. Not the picture of health and vitality that we're really going for, is it? But here's the thing. The root, if the root is strong, you come back and start tending to it again, it springs back to life. I have a ficus at home that I've resurrected probably 12 times. 
<laughs> you just can't kill it. It goes through unhealthy seasons because I don't water it. <laughs> but as soon as I start tending to it again, it doesn't take long and it springs back to life. Why? Because the root is strong. Because the root continues on. And during this committed stage, it says you are rooted. You are rooted in Christ. Be built up in Christ. Be built up in him. The same thing happens in our spiritual nature. If, if you have neglected your spiritual walk with God during this time, you didn't die. The root's still there. It might not be healthy. You might know very well that there's not a great vitality taking place. But if you start to tend to it again, if you start to get back involved in cultivating that relationship with God and with his people again, you'll start to see life spring back to it, spring back to you. Philippians 1, 6 says, we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry that on to completion. That will happen, that is God's promise to us, but we have to do our part in intentionally cultivating those relationships. Now, at various points on this journey, you will find the opportunity to cultivate this in other people's lives as well, in your relationship with them. You'll want to invite other people to experience new life with Jesus as you have experienced it as well. And just as someone at one point shared the good news of Jesus with you, and you received, and you lived in him, and your root grew strong, and your faith strengthened, and brought you thankfulness, you then have the opportunity to pass that on. To pass it on to others as a follower who makes followers of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? I want you to be familiar with these terms. I want you to be familiar with this language because everyone, whether you're on site or online here with us today, will find ourselves aligned with one of these four stages. And these are the four stages of what we refer to as our discipleship pathway here at West Meadows. Our discipleship pathway is is a pathway to learning and growing in relationship with God and with one another as we journey along through these four stages of life. We want you to be familiar with these terms. To kind of know where you are at in this. Because if you know where you're at, you know the answer to the question that Jesus asks. You know the answer to the question, why are you looking for me? What do you need? What's the next step in your life can be answered if you know which of these stages you're in. And here at West Meadows, we want to help you take that next step. We want to help you to do so as you can grow in relationship with Jesus and with us. You know, in the foyer out here, as was mentioned earlier, we have one area, it's right here, directly out this way, that has a welcome sign on it. And if you are new or newer among us, or if you have a general question about the church, faith, life, we encourage you to go to the welcome desk for that first step. But then right over here in this section of the foyer, we have a sign that says, next steps. And this is where you find ministry opportunities. This is where you learn, how do I get involved? How do I connect? How do I join a ministry? How do I serve? And today, we're having a little bit of a ministry fair over there. We're not going to have every ministry at a table, but we're going to have every ministry represented at a table. And in the days ahead, there are going to be more opportunities to hear more about this discipleship pathway and where things fit in and what's available to you. It's one of the reasons that, that Pastor Andrew is called our pastor of discipleship and outreach is that this is one of the things that he's working to build and create and engage all of us in. And what we do have in that area today are, are four tables that represent four groups. And all four of these groups have opportunities for you, whether you're at the curious, the captivated, the committed, or the cultivating stage, there is something in these four groups for you. 
And they are, as you can see on the screen, they are the connect groups, the teaching groups, the life groups, the serve groups. I'm going to ask those reps to come out here and join me on the platform right now. I'm going to talk to these guys a little bit about these four groups really very briefly to help you understand what is going to be available to you this year and even today in the foyer. You see at these four tables, there will be a representative who has some information after service. I want you to stop by. Ask a question. Learn some information. Say, you know, I, you know, I feel like, I, I, feel like I, I need to get engaged in more community or I, I need to learn more about something. And they can help you understand what that looks like and even get signed up. Or perhaps they just grab the information. And so as they join me here, we're going to talk to them for just a brief minute. Um, these three guys plus me, so four of us. Yep, I'll just back up to you now. Here we go. we got our stools. So we're going to just talk about what's going to be available in the foyer uh, after service here in, in just a moment. And uh, let's begin this really quickly, just give kind of a brief overview, and then we'll head out there and we can do more details out in the foyer. But quickly, we'll start with you on the end here, Dave. Uh, what ministry are you representing today, and I'm, how would you describe that for us in one sentence? I'm representing the Connect Groups, and Connect Groups are people that come together for event-based gatherings that help build relationships. Perfect. Andrew? I am representing the Teaching Groups, so the main driving force behind the discipleship pathway and so in one sentence it's groups that have a static content usually so regular same teaching stuff but different people in them there you go and i'm representing the best groups oh no oh, best groups life, life groups. groups sorry life groups best groups oh yeah life groups uh groups of four to twelve people who get together in people's homes at the church here or other places and they do four things they get together regularly they share lives authentically they grow spiritually and they serve. The four things. How about you? Perfect. Yeah, I'm representing serve groups. Mm-hmm. Important. Yeah. So serve groups are, in one sentence, an opportunity for people with skills and abilities, or people who want to learn skills and abilities, to serve in the church and to serve the church and to serve the community. Perfect. All right. So that's kind of the four groups that are out there. Whether you are, are curious, captivated, committed, cultivating, there is something within these within these groups to help you understand what that next step with Jesus would, would possibly look like. So let's get some ideas about that. We'll start with you again, Dave. Why would someone want to get involved with one of the groups in your area? Well, people would get involved with connect groups to build relationships with each other in an informal environment that is a lot of fun. These groups allow for a lot of interaction between different age groups, which helps them be very approachable for everyone. Whether you are new to West Meadows or have been attending for decades, Connect groups are for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful. How about you, Andrew? What about teaching groups? Why would somebody want to get involved with teaching groups? Yeah, teaching groups are the main areas that feed your, your head. So we have the head, hard hands type deal out here. And so they, lots of head knowledge you're going to gain understanding and also be able to dig into some of those questions that Alpha addresses. We have a few other courses that kind of go a little deeper as you continue to go. So you're going to grow in your understanding of God as well. Awesome. What about serve groups? Why would somebody want to get involved in serve groups? Yeah, serve groups, I mentioned a little bit already, but if you have skills and abilities that you want to share, um, we certainly have a need for it. There are a lot of ways you can get involved. I'll mention a few in a moment. Uh, but yeah, opportunity to, to share your skills and abilities, but also to learn skills and abilities. Yeah. And then life groups. Um, you know, we try to address within the life groups some of the most common things that people talk about that they struggle with. Uh, how do I build friendships and relationships with other people in the church? Um, how do I feel like I'm part of the community? Sometimes people ask me the question, who's your 3 a.m. person? Like if a crisis hit at 3 a.m., outside of your family, do you have somebody you could call? 
quite often people who are in life groups, it, it, those are the people that they would call because they are doing life together. Uh, also, people who study with the devotional life, and I have a hard time doing devotions, I have a hard time reading my Bible, I have a hard time praying. Getting to a regular rhythm of going to a life group involves those things, and so it helps you to not only establish that, but to learn and grow in those ways. But then we serve as well, um, serving within the group, but also serving the community and the church too. So yeah, it's relationship, spiritual growth, and service within uh, the context of life groups. Those are some of the reasons that people would want to be part of a life group. Uh, so last question, and then we'll let you guys go out there and get ready for after service here. Give us an idea, sort of a brief summary of some of the types of groups that people would find in your ministry area. Start with you again, Dave. Sure. The types of groups we have span all different interests, all as well as providing some of age-specific. For example, we have sports for people who like sports, like ball hockey or slow pitch. There are also groups geared towards other interest areas like compassionate crafters. And there are some age-specific ones like the Zoomers, where mentioned previously was a barbecue coming up for anyone over the age of 50. Mm-hmm. Would you, Andrew? Uh, for teaching groups, we uh, currently are going to run Alpha tomorrow, so that's one of the ones that you can jump into there. I'm currently working on creating one called How to Read the Bible, so that's a, we're calling it Discipleship 301, so that's kind of for those that feel like you land in the committed stage. That would be a, a fun group for you to jump into there, but also coming up in the winter, we have Foundations, which is going to, it kind of addresses the captivated stage if you feel that you're there, and then also Real Life Discipleship which is coming up hopefully in the winter, and that would be to address the uh, cultivating stage. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Life groups already described kind of what life groups are, but we have all sorts. We've got some for, uh, that are uh, formed around seasons of life, so groups for young families, groups for adults. We have a couple of seniors groups that get together. We have some intergenerational groups. Uh, we have some uh, areas, groups that are formed around areas. We have a number of people who travel. We're, we're so blessed to have people who travel from the south side of Edmonton to come here each week. And so we're getting a group established for the south side of Edmonton for people down there. Wednesday, we've got a group for men and women. So, you know, come as a married couple. One goes one way, one goes the other way. You can each have your own group there on Wednesday evenings. And emerging uh, even more this year uh, is our Beyond the Message groups. And so that's where we create a small group curriculum that aligns with the Sunday service message. And then you can discuss the sermon more in your small group. And so these beyond the message groups are becoming increasingly popular as well. Yeah. What you, Zach? Yep. So for serve groups, many of which you've probably encountered this morning, uh, we've got our ushers, our greeters, our tech team, our worship team, cafe, if you've gotten a coffee in your hands already, it's from the cafe team. Uh, So lots of opportunities to serve on Sunday mornings, but also throughout the week. uh, Like we've got our food bank that's here on Mondays and Tuesdays. uh, Second stories that happens on Mondays as well. and yeah, lots of opportunities. And the best part is all these opportunities are available for all ages. Um, and in fact, many of our teams that are currently serving are kind of that Zoomer category and up, right? And so we would love to have some more people join in that younger category too. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Um, so I'll let you guys head out there and start getting ready. But, but as you leave today, so I, I hope that you'll keep this in mind, that, that something today kind of sparked within you on how you would answer that question that Jesus asked. Why are you looking for me? What is it that Jesus has to offer that would be a next step for you? And if you can identify where you are in these four categories, the curious, the captivated, the committed, the cultivating, you'll have an idea of what that next step possibly could look like. And as you listen to these interviews that we just briefly did here today, I hope they gave you a sense of, of practically speaking here at West Meadows that we have next steps for everybody at all stages. 
As I want to encourage you to go out and to talk to these people. I'm going to invite the worship team to come join me on the platform here as we just wrap up very quickly. I encourage you to go out and talk to these, these folks in the foyer to uh, ask your questions, to get your information. You saw that we focused upon adult ministries up here. All of these exist for kids and youth as well, and, and they won't be at those four tables. We've got a, a table just for kids and youth. And so if you want to uh, learn more about how that can happen in, in your children or grandchildren's lives, stop by and see Thena at that table. We want to help you take that next step for them as well. This is one of the best ways you can be intentional about cultivating these relationships with God and others. And keep in mind, there's no obligation today. It's just information. You're not signing away your firstborn. Well, maybe the kids stay. I don't know. You're not doing that, are you, Thena? No. Okay. Maybe for a couple hours on a Friday, you are. But that's the extent of it. It, it. There's no obligation today. It's just information. And so go learn, ask your questions, see what's there, and allow God to direct you as you walk in a deeper walk with Jesus.